So here we go with chapter 16 of the screw tape letters. And uh, um, we, we find in this one that, that uh, screw tape, well, screw tape finds out that, uh, that his patient, Bob, has uh, started to go to church. Um, and so this is a very interesting thing. Uh, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, cured, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. <laughs> this never happens, right? I don't want to go to that church anymore. I'm going to try this church, and then I'm going to, you know, church hoppers, um, which, you know, a lot of people have, have, have been that in their own lives for various reasons. Some of those reasons might be good reasons, um, but uh, it's interesting to look at, um, you know, his reasons where he would, he would spotlight a sort of spiritual flaw, okay? Or, in, yeah. Um, so why would you do this? Um, number one, the parochial, the church organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. Um, right, the congregational principle, on the other hand, makes each church into a kind of club. And finally, if all goes well, into a coterie of faction. Um, so, so this is obviously true, right? When you go to church, you're, you're, you're mixing all kinds of races and ethnicities as well as socioeconomic factors. Um, you may be going to church with somebody you really don't like, you know, or a lot of people you really don't like and, and having to engage people that are a lot different than you. And yet the whole idea of coming together as church is part of it is unity. Right, that we're all coming together to do one thing at the same time. So that should be attacked. Try to, if, if he's going to go to church, try to break him into factions. And usually within every, usually within every parish, there tends, to be, uh, there tends to be factions and cliques and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I'm sure it's no different in our churches. Um, so you get groupings of people that like each other and then they sort of either create or assume potential conflicts or, or issues with the other group. Um, you know, one of the one of the famous ones or or the most common ones, I should say, is, um, you know, people who are the conservative ones and, and then the 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 liberal Catholics, if you will, um, that sort of thing. So, so the first thing is to, to attack it because, because the idea is to try to pull him away from that sense of unity because the, the strength of church is in the unity. So the stronger churches are always going to be the ones that are the most unified, that don't buy into you know, the factions, that, that understand that you know, we need to come together as one even though we don't have to agree on everything. Um, which I guess is partially my job to do that. Um, so that another reason to attack this is the search for a quote suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. 
right? So if you, if you make somebody focused on, on being a connoisseur of churches, they become very, very critical of, of everything where, you know, what the Lord is really after is that we become a student, not a critic. And yet it's so, it's so easy for people to jump into criticism. I mean, I can only imagine how many of you have criticized me behind my back. <laughs> because it's so easy to do. It's so easy to do. Um, it, it just, of course, right? I mean, it's just like if you work for a company, you're going you're gonna to criticize the boss or, you know, a group of priests are going to get together and criticize the bishop. I mean, it's just, <laughs> just what happens, you know? But, but the problem with it, okay, the, 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 the problem with getting into that too much, it's not that a priest is beyond criticism. I certainly don't want that to, to be conveyed. But the danger is if a person becomes so focused on critiquing everything, you know, not just the priest, but, but everything about the church, um, then they cease to be open. They cease to be open to what God wants to give them. Okay, and so that's what we move on here. What Screwtape says, God wants of the layman in church, he wants an attitude, which indeed may be critical in the sense of rejecting, which is false or unhelpful, right? But which is wholly uncritical in the sense that it does not appraise, does not waste time in thinking about what it rejects, but lays itself open in uncommenting, humble receptivity to any nourishment that is going any nourishment that is going. He continues a little bit later. There's hardly any sermon or any book which may not be dangerous to us if it is received in this temper. So pray, bestir yourself, and send this fool the round of neighboring churches as soon as possible. Um, so if a person is truly open, right, and uh, to, to any sermon that's being given, um, if, if you can get past the things maybe you don't like about the person speaking or the way in which they're doing it or, you know, the methodology or maybe they're just their delivery is not engaging. If you can kind of get past all of that, if you can really, truly be open, if we can truly be open, there's usually something we're going to get. But we have to get past our own stuff. I'm bored. He's boring. Well, maybe he is, but maybe you know, a lot of times people who would say, well, a, a priest is boring or that homily is boring are also people who aren't putting a whole lot of effort in, you know, and this is one of the things that we have to, we have to struggle past because we're in this era of entertainment where, where people like to be entertained. And it's hard to, um, you know, some people have asked me, father, <laughs> it's just the strangest question I've ever gotten. Father, why can't you preach longer? And I'm, I can't believe it, you know. I'm like, are you serious? I mean, I've never been, you know, it's just so uncommon. But part of the reason you don't, and part of the, it's all intentional. I mean, uh, pretty much everything I do is pretty intentional. It's all pretty well thought out. But the reason you don't do it is because of um, the limited attention span of, of people. They just, it's hard. And then, you know, if you've got your kids along, right? Um, not you, Kathleen, but you know, um, you know, you got your kids along and you got to make trips outside and it's hard. It's just hard to stay engaged. So as a priest, 
you know, you're trying to, you're trying to think of that. But, but at the same time, it's harder and harder for people to, to pay attention for longer periods of time. Pews are not particularly comfortable places to sit. You know, there's a lot of factors sort of working against us. But if we can get beyond all of that um, and, and sort of get our natural, you know, critiques or, or issues out of the way and, and truly be open to whatever God is, is wanting to give us, it's going to be rare, I think, that we would go to church and not get something out of one of the readings, out of the homily, or out of one of the prayers that's being said, if we're really focused. Um, and so the temptation is if you can get people to be really critical of everything, um, and there, you know, I've, I've definitely seen this before. Um, and so if a person is, is critical of everything, I don't, you know, he says too many jokes. He doesn't tell enough jokes. He, I wish he would walk around. Well, I wish he would be stationary. I would, I mean, if you heard the stuff that I have heard from people of what I ought to do, I, I think I would just be immobilized. I wouldn't be able, be able to do anything. So I don't listen to any of you. <laughs> About that, I, I, I do, <laughs> that is a joke. Um, I do listen. Actually, you know, you know what's, what's really helpful for the priest is uh, because, because priests tend to be, and this is just you know, for your consideration, t- priests tend to get so many comments that the best way to approach a priest with, with what is, is with what's working. So if, if you were to, um, if, let's say you're at a church and, and the priest largely is giving a homily or his technique or his delivery style is not all that engaging, but then one Sunday he hits on something or some element and you're like, wow, that was really good. The best thing I would say to do is to, to affirm what's good because then that gives, a lot of priests don't have confidence you know, speaking in front of people. It's just like anyone else. It's one of those very difficult things, I guess, to do for people who weren't musicians in their younger life and wanted to be rock stars. So, um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, so priests can be very intimidated too. So the best way to, to, I think, approach that is encouragement. Anytime, if you find something good, encourage it. Um, and that'll give them more confidence. Okay. Um, okay, and then so he, 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 he's picked up on two churches nearest him. I'll just make a comment about these particular uh, vicars or uh, they're probably, you know, he's probably referring to Episcopalian <coughs> priests. And without going into that, theological issue. Uh, we'll just take that as it is. Um, the first church, the vicar is, you know, the priest, it basically has watered down the faith completely or to such a degree that there's no danger of, of any real truth convicting Bob. So if he goes to that church, it's just sort of a church of niceties and pleasantness where there's never going to be a challenge you know, uh, sort of levied against Bob. So he can go there and just be comfortable, etc. So he says, we are safe from the danger that any truth not already familiar to him and to his flock should ever reach them through scripture. But then there's Father Spike, um, who apparently is somewhat irascible and uh, likes to stir up trouble, likes to be pretty critical here too. 
The man himself cannot, the, the man cannot bring himself to preach anything which is not calculated to shock, grieve, puzzle, or humiliate his parents and their friends. So Father Spike has some childhood wounds that he still has not reconciled. Um, and so he goes on, you know, about how he will, you know, teach this or that or whatever is sort of current. However, he says at the end, but I must warn you that he has one fatal defect. He really believes. He really believes. Um, what I think is great about Lewis is he, he, he doesn't make any uh, bones about being critical of clergymen and saying that um, there's quite a few of them who don't believe, you know, which you would find, you might find shocking, but it's true, you know. Um, either they don't believe or they've, they've watered things down to such a degree that that they'll never really affect anything. Um, and, and that's always a difficult thing to, to discern. Like, you know, I waited, I, I was very calculating on how long I preached that homily a couple weeks ago on the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, I, I think uh, that, you know, I didn't really hit anybody with anything too controversial up until then. But in that homily, you got you know, you got everything from, you know, contraception to abortion to, I mean, I hit all the main targets, right? But that was, that was a, uh, that was all very calculated and planned out because I didn't want to storm the castle with that on the second week, you know? I thought, well, we'll wait and see. <laughs> Maybe they'll get to know me a little bit and, and uh, trust that I, what I'm giving them is relatively solid. Um, Okay, so, but, but then there are some priests who just don't, don't like to deal with conflict or they're afraid of conflict or they just don't want to go into it or maybe they just don't even agree, you know, they just don't even believe. And so they'll never address any of that stuff, right? And those are very safe churches in a sense to, to, go, to, to go to mass because you'll never, you'll never be moved to change. Um, I would say that that's a worthless church, but... Okay. Um, so anyway, then he goes on and he talks about how there can be divisions in each of the churches, etc. Let's move to 17. Um, gluttony. This one's, uh, this, this I think is just, a, again, just a great insight on Lewis. Because remember that um, in the tradition, virtue and vice, right? Uh, virtue and vice lie in between... Um, or let's, let's do it this way. So virtue is always the mean between two extremes, okay? Too little and too much. This, uh, this is the classic definition of virtue. Um, oh, this isn't really a definition of virtue, but the, the understanding of where, where a virtue lies between human action according to Aristotle. And the Christian tradition took all of this. That virtue is a moderation. Okay. So that uh, too much food is a vice and too little food is vice. This is vice over here and vice over here. Uh, being, uh, giving, a, giving away hardly any money could be greed um, giving away far too much money could be reckless. 
you know, if you need to pay the rent. Um, so when he, when he talks about gluttony, the obvious thing of gluttony or the obvious understanding of gluttony is, is gluttony of excess. But he says in recent history, we've, concert, we, we've concentrated our efforts on gluttony of delicacy as opposed to gluttony of excess, which I think is fantastic. And so he's talking about this guy's mother. <laughs> oh, that's great. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. Um, always turning from what has been offered her to say with the demure little sigh and smile, oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea. Weak, but not too weak. And the, the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has set, been set before her. She never recognizes that as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes that she is practicing temperance. In a crowded restaurant, she gives a scream at the plate that's set down before her. Oh, that's far too much. Take it away and bring me about a quarter of it. If challenged, she would say she was doing this to avoid waste. In reality, she does it because the particular shade of delicacy to which we have enslaved her is offended by the sight of more food than she happens to want. The woman is in what may be called the all I want state of mind. All she wants is a cup of tea properly made or an egg properly boiled or a slice of bread properly toasted. But she never finds any servant or any friend who can do these things properly because her properly conceals an insatiable demand for the exact and almost impossible palatal pleasures which she imagines she remembers from the past, a past described by her as the days when you could get good servants, but known to us as the days when her senses were more easily pleased and she had pleasures of other kinds, which made her less dependent on those of the table. Meanwhile, the daily disappointment produces daily ill temper. Um, so I, I, this is just a great insight, right? Because it's just another one of those things where, you know, whether, whether you consider this, you know, a, a defect of virtue called gluttony, you know, too little, um, what you have is a person who is so particular, you know, and so, um, so hard to please that they refuse to ever be pleased by anything. You know, you, they bring out the food and it's never cooked right. So even if no, I'll take, it's fine. I'll eat it, you know, but it's the kind of person who is never happy with anything. Now, if that's you, don't, don't get mad at me for bringing it up, um, you know, it's just one of those things. The, the whole thing is about enlightenment. So just kind of consider that. Now that doesn't mean if somebody, you know, the next time you got to dinner and they, they put the steak down before you and, and it's, it's overcooked, you can't say, oh, I better not say it's overcooked. I just went to that class. Sometimes something's just overcooked, you know. Apparently in Williams, uh, medium actually means medium well, I've come to find out. In Italy, medium means rare. Um, well, not quite rare. It's like medium rare or less. So you always have to ask for well done in Italy because they just don't, they don't cook it the same. But anyway, um, 
that's not really the point. The point is, you know, getting, getting the food or get, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. A person is just never happy. And really what they're doing is they're always putting out other people to try to please them. It's, it's a type of control. You know, it's a type of control that that person tries to levy on other people, whether it's family or, you know, servants or, or waiters or waitresses, etc. They're never happy. And what they're actually really feeding internally is this need to sort of control and direct, direct traffic of all those people around them. So this is something to consider. It doesn't mean if you get the wrong thing, you know, I hate going through the drive through because I always mess up my order. You know, and then I'm like, no, I'm not going to wait and look through my bag because I don't want to feel like I don't trust them. And then I'm like, forget it, because they screwed it up the last two times. That's not what we're talking about. They put mustard on my amber again. I told them only cheese plain. That's it. Nothing. Nothing. I say it like three times. Only cheese plain. It should be easy. Bun, meat, cheese. And they still can't, you know. But as I'm driving away, the other day I was going to Seligman on Sunday and I stopped at McDonald's to get a, a one of those, uh, you know, breakfast things and sandwiches. And they gave me something totally different with like bacon and I hate bacon, you know. I'm driving away and I'm like, bacon? What the heck? I didn't order bacon. I ate it. <laughs> anyway. Okay, sorry, you didn't come here for that. Um, or maybe you did, I don't know. Okay, so uh, that's all I wanted to talk about there. 18, being in love. All right, so what he's talking about here is this... Um, you know, marriage and sexuality relevant to being in love. Okay. And so he says the enemy's demand, God's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma, either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our father's first great victory, the garden, right? Uh, we have rendered the former complete abstinence very difficult to them. The latter monogamy, for the last few centuries, we have been closing up as a way of escape. We have done this through poets and novelists by persuading the humans that a curious and unusually short-lived experience by which they call being in love is the only respectable ground for marriage. So this is really interesting. The, the, the idea of being in love, you know, you could, you could almost spell that L-U-V, being in love. I'm in love with her. Okay, but after you've been married for five years, do you feel the same way? It's different, right? I mean, not having been married, I don't want to suggest that I understand this, but being in a somewhat committed relationship myself, after five years, it feels different, right? Commitment feels different after time. So the whole point that he's trying to say is we're trying to convince people that if that feeling of being in love is gone, you don't have to be faithful anymore. Or you don't, you know, you can divorce, etc. That's what he's getting at. Okay. So, uh, 
that a curious and short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage. That marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent. Excitement permanent. Permanent excitement in marriage. How long have you guys been married? Like 20, 26 years. Permanent excitement. That's a lot to put on your husband. Holy Bill. Can you imagine if we had, how long? 39. 39. God bless you. Permanent <laughs> excitement. Not too exciting. Not too exciting. Okay. She's not here. It's okay. It's okay. No one's going to tell. No one's going to tell. It's a very small town. It's a very small town. <laughs> but so, so this is the idea, though, is that the temptation. Right. And, and you see this, you see this in, in, in people's marriage. And, and a lot of times they got to work through this. What happens when the relationship changes and that original excitement starts to fade? And then you have all of the real things of life that that come in. Right. Including children and jobs and stress and blah, blah, blah. And it changes. And then you don't have that excitement, which people begin to say, and they still say, I have a right to that excitement. I have a right to those feelings. I have a right to this and that. So I'll trade in my wife for a younger model. And that's what they do. Don't do it. Don't do it. But men think about it. They do. And a lot of men do it. And I'm not just picking on the men, but you know, it's easier. The whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing. This is interesting. And especially that one self is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self does the same. With beasts, the absorp absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of a weaker self into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. He's saying this is what hell is, okay? That there can't be two selves that essentially come together as one. There can only be individual selves that dominate the other, okay? And that's what he gets at. Now, the enemy's philosophy, God's philosophy, is nothing more nor less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. He aims at a contradiction. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. The good of oneself is to be the good of another. This impossibility he calls love. See, in hell this can't happen because the, the selves, such as they are in hell, are eternally in competition with each other for domination or et cetera. Now, people who are essentially in hell now, while they're living, this is what their life is like. There's never any room for anyone else. There's only room for their self, and all other selves must you know, make way for them, right? They have to dominate, they have to be in competition with other people. These are the kind of people who probably you're going to have a hard time getting into heaven because that's not what heaven is like. That's not who God has revealed himself to be. I mean, in his, in his very essence. Um, 
And this is what he says, says here. Thus, he is not content even himself to be a sheer arithmetical, arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one. Uh, he continues later as he talks about, about sexuality. But in the humans, the enemy has gratuitously associated affection between the parties with sexual desire. He has also made the offspring dependent on the parents and given the parents an impulse to support it, thus producing the family, which is like the organism, only worse, for the members are more distinct, yet also united in a more conscious and responsible way. The whole thing, in fact, turns out to be simply one more device for dragging in love. Now comes the joke. The enemy described a married couple as one flesh. He did not say a happily married couple or a couple who married because they were in love. But you can make the humans ignore that. You can also make them forget that the man they call Paul did not confine it to married couples. Mere copulation for him makes one flesh. You can thus get the humans to accept as rhetorical eulogies of being in love what were in fact plain descriptions of the real significance of sexual intercourse. The truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman, there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. From the true statement that this transcendental relation was intended to produce and, if obediently entered into, too often will produce affection in the family, humans can be made to infer the false belief that the blend of affection, fear, and desire, which they call being in love, is the only thing that makes marriage either happy or holy. The error is easy to produce because being in love does very often in Western Europe precede marriages, which are made in obedience to the enemy's designs, that is, with the intention of fidelity, fertility, and goodwill, just as religious emotion very often, but not, not always, attends conversion. In other words, the humans are to be encouraged to regard as the basis for marriage a highly colored and distorted version of something the enemy really promises as a result. Are you following this? I'm reading it for a reason because it's, I want to get it on tape too. Two advantages follow. In the first place, humans who have not the gift of continence can be deterred from seeking marriage as a solution because they do not find themselves in love. In the second place, any sexual infatuation, whatever, so long as it intends marriage, will be regarded as love. And love will be held to excuse a man from all the guilt and to protect him from all the consequences of marrying a heathen, a fool, or a wanton. All right. So basically, again, the whole, the whole thing that, you know, Satan always tempts us to something that's kind of true. He never tempts us to something that's obviously false and horrible for us, okay? Because you wouldn't do it. There has to be some perceived good in what we're pursuing, okay? So with sexuality or with marriage, the, the whole idea is to pervert the idea of marriage. So all of these good things that come from marriage um, are sort of promised by, by Satan, but they're promised on the basis of the affectivity of being in love, not the hard work of what it means to actually get to that point 
of, of having, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, the hard work of building that relationship, which comes through a lot of fights and a lot of reconciliation and tears and, you know, not through that. What, what Satan tries to do is he tries to tempt people to think that, you know, the, Trying, trying to confuse that state with just the feeling of being in love. And that as long as that feeling is the goal, as opposed to all of these other goods, as long as the goal is just feeling like I'm in love, like I was the first time, um, as soon as that's gone, you can just, like Lincoln Logs or whatever, you can just pull, or a deck of cards, you just pull that away and the whole thing crumbles. So that if a man marries because he has just this feeling of being in love and he is not prepared for all of the work, you know, for all of the pain, for all of the sacrifice, etc. If it's just focused on the feeling of being in love, right, then either he won't get married because he just wants to, you know, be a womanizer, essentially, and just have that 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 immediate pleasure and feeling. Or when he does get married, he'll think, well, I need to, I need to retain that feeling for the, the entirety of marriage, that excitement for 40, 30, 39 years of excitement. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. I mean, I know because, you know, of course, I, I talked to a few people about marriage over the years. And, uh, you know, I come from a family. Um, so it's obvious that that relationships are hard and married relationships are particularly hard. And if a person goes into it thinking, why this is exciting and I just want to maintain this affectivity, you know, this feeling, this emotion of excitement, as long as I have that, I'll stay married. Well, how long did that take to end? You don't have to answer, but if you want to. So does that, does that, explicate the, the point there? Okay. So getting people to settle for less. And, you know, and that's, I think that's a pretty common, common thing. And in, in the same thing in priesthood, it's the same thing in any kind of, any kind of commitment that a person makes, right? I mean, the, my feeling about being a priest is different now than it was almost 18 years ago. It's just different. You know, it should be different though, shouldn't it? I mean, I'm a different person than I was. That, mean I, that doesn't mean I don't love it, but the kids asked me, oh, man, the kids, what did they ask me <laughs> last Monday? Did they, what was the question? Do you, why, you didn't have to become a priest till you were 29. Why did you wait till you were 29? Oh, why did I wait till I was 29 to become a priest? Well, there was that. Um, but then there was like, wasn't it something like, do you, do you love being a priest? Oh, or, yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't lie. I can't lie, really, but especially to kids. And so I said, well, usually, yeah, mm-hmm. usually I do love it. But everybody has bad days. You know, your parents have bad days. You have bad days. You know, some things I really love, some things I don't love so much. And some days are bad and I just want to go to bed. And, you know, just like anyone else, you know. But when you're really young, you know, and you're just starting out in priesthood, everything's exciting because it is, you know. And then after that month is over, boy. <laughs> no, it lasts longer than that. It lasts longer than that. 
and it comes back. It just comes back different. I, d- I don't know if you can relate being in, being in marriage. I, I presume you can, but it, it comes back in different ways, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, and it's a beautiful thing the way it comes back because it's like God gives you uh, consolation, you know, spiritual consolation, I think in marriage as well as in priesthood in different ways that's sort of more suited to where you're at in life, um, I think. At least that's been my experience so far. Um, I'll let you know in another year or so how that's going. You'll, well, you'll know. I'll just tell you. Pretty open. Okay, so 19. So, where is it? Is this where he got turned in? He gets his, uh, his nephew turns him into the secret police. I think it's, uh, it's coming up if it wasn't here. But anyway, so he says, uh, I slipped up by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy really loves humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. His talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to find out that real motive. Um, you know, there's sometimes I read this and I think, wow, Lewis really seems to understand devils. And then I realize that I don't really understand them. So he could be right, but maybe he's not. But it would make sense that the devils would be utterly confused about God's motive. Because somebody who has their perspective of, of a self dominating another self, right, of, of the will being primary um, to dominate, not to love, um, would not understand how somebody could be so um, perfectly loving because they themselves would have rejected it, right? They themselves in their rebellion would have rejected that perfect love because they, they would have never thought it a real possibility, okay? So to not be able to understand it, they're, they're thinking there's got to be another angle because they can't understand somebody else thinking any differently than they really think. So. They just think it's, it's actually just kind of like um, watching politics these days. It's like, you know, this side has their narrative and the other side has their narrative. It doesn't matter what's true. It just matters what the narrative is. And if we can figure out their narrative, well, then we'll shoot holes in that narrative. And whoever's stronger and whoever has the strongest media behind them wins. You know, it's all about power. And that's the perspective of, and I'm blaming every, every political party. So... And I think every political party is, um, except for my political party, which is independent, is guilty of it. So no political party, um, you know, is guilty of it because the, the goal is power. And so this is something that's particularly satanic. When the, when the goal is domination and power, the goal can't be love. It can't be love. So we wonder why, why can our politicians not do what's best for our country? because they really aren't focused on doing, they're doing, you know, they're focused on power. They're focused on domination. Now, I'm not saying, because you might say, well, this one guy isn't, and that's probably true. But the, the machine itself, this is my opinion, by the way, so you can discard it at will, but it's my observation of what's happening, because it, it helps me to understand what's happening. Why in the heck does do things not get done? You know, I mean, you have, 
you know, with one president, you have control of, you know, he's got control of both houses, stuff doesn't get done. And then it switches the other party, you know, and they didn't do anything about immigration then. And now they're complaining that the other party isn't doing about anything about immigration now. And the reality is they don't really want to do anything about immigration because it's about power. The reason why, okay, here's, do you want me to actually talk about this? So the, the reason, this is my, this is on tape too. I think the reason why political parties don't want to solve problems is because they need the problem to exist for the next, next election cycle. I know this isn't an original thought. Maybe I'm just late to the party. Probably am. But they need the conflict to exist because they need people to rally behind the conflict. So they don't solve the problem because if they solve the problem, they wouldn't have the banner to carry into the next election to point at the other guy and say they're not solving it. And they both do it. I mean, think about it from the perspective, you could, you could talk about it from the perspective of, of, of immigration. Why isn't that fixed yet? Like, that's, that should be fixed. Um, but you could also talk about it from the perspective of pro-life. I mean, the, the Republican Party has had all kinds of opportunities to do things under George W. Bush, under a current president. And I'm not saying they haven't done anything. I'm saying they had all kinds of possibilities to do more, and they haven't done it because they need that issue to continue to fire up their base. So it becomes, all right, so I'm obviously really cynical. I just keep going here. But anyway, you get it. Um, but I think the same thing is going on here, which is what springboarded me into that tangential commentary, um, that this is what, this is from the perspective of the devils, that that's their perspective. It's about power and domination. So they're just trying to figure out what God's really up to. You know, he keeps talking about love, but, but love doesn't mean domination and control. So that can't be true because we can't see things that way. All right. And so uh, this is really interesting here, too. Um, I do not see that it can do any harm to tell you that this very problem was a chief cause of our father's quarrel with the enemy, Satan, with God. When the creation of man was first mooted and when even at that stage the enemy freely confessed that he foresaw a certain episode about a cross, our father very naturally sought an interview and asked for an explanation. Because that's what you do with God, you know, explain it to me. The enemy gave no reply except to produce the cock and bull story about disinterested love which he has been circulating ever since. This our father naturally could not accept. He implored the enemy to lay his cards on the table and gave him every opportunity. He admitted that he felt a real anxiety to know the secret. The enemy replied, I wish with all my heart that you did. It was, I imagine, at this stage in the interview that our father's disgust at such an unprovoked lack of confidence caused him to remove himself an infinite distance from the presence with a suddenness which has given rise to the ridiculous enemy story that he was forcibly thrown out of heaven. <laughs> Since then, we have begun to see why our oppressor was so secretive. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if ever we came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know that he cannot really love. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he was really up to. Blah, 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 blah. 
Um, okay, so then the question is whether he regards being in love as desirable or not. So the question Wormwood has is, does this help us or not help us? Um, and so Screwtape says, leave, leave them to discuss whether, quote, love or patriotism or celibacy or candles on altars or teetotalism or education are good or bad. Can't you see that there's no answer? Nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind in given circumstances to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us, which is modern politics. It doesn't matter what's true. It doesn't matter the issue. The goal is moving them into this party or that party. That's the goal. That's, that's the power perspective. Okay, the power perspective is not truth, goodness, goodwill, good of country, right? That's not the perspective of those who are merely focused on power, right? I mean, obviously, the good politicians aren't that way. But the ones who are focused merely on power, it doesn't matter what's true. They don't care. They just need to get reelected and stay in power. That's their goal. Um, and it's the goal of anybody who would be in power. There's plenty, of, there's plenty of people in business. There's plenty of people in the church. There's plenty of bishops. There's plenty of priests. There's plenty of all kinds of people whose focus is power. I'm not saying all of them, but it's true. We've seen it, you know? I mean, in, there, is there really any reason to to pretend like we haven't seen it, it's obvious. And so when a person gets so corrupted, so that power, which it, by the way is always more, more seductive than, than you know, pleasure or you know, money, power is really the, the greatest temptation. And so when a person gets so corrupted that's all they care about, they'll say anything to stay in power. It doesn't matter what's true. And this is, what, this is how Satan perceives you know, the issue between himself and God. Get it quite clear in your own mind that the state of falling in love is not in itself necessarily favorable either to us or to the other side. It is simply an occasion which we and the enemy are both trying to exploit. Okay? Now, obviously, that's not God trying to exploit that. But they can't, you know, the devils can't understand because if they really believe God loved perfectly, they would have to believe that he loved them perfectly. But you could never stay in rebellion if the, the infinite loved you infinitely. You could never stay in rebellion against it. So there has to be something else. And this is, by the way, this is why people ultimately rebel against God. They don't rebel against God because they believe that, they re that he really loves them perfectly. They've come to believe that he actually doesn't or he has it out for them or he's unfair, um, or he allows, he allows suffering that is unfair, or tragedy that's unfair, or whatever it is. Or he allowed somebody to hurt them, um, you know, who, who you know, belong to the church, or something like that, and so they, they, they put that on God. And I'm not saying that all of those things are not serious and good reasons to be upset, you know, and to have serious conflict in one's life. But that's how a person has, that's what you would have to get to, to get to a point to rebel against God for eternity. You would have to be convinced that he was not truly infinitely loving. Because if you knew that, you would never want to rebel against that. Who wants to rebel against love? 
Bill, you love me too much. I never want to talk to you again. <laughs> He's way too nice to me. I can't stand being around him. I mean, that, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, we don't do that. So it has to be another reason. Okay. Um, I know with great displeasure, this is interesting too, because he's talking about grace. I know with great displeasure that the enemy has, for the time being, put a forcible end to your direct attacks on the patient's chastity. You ought to have known that he always does this in the end. And you ought to have stopped before you reach that stage. For as things are, your man has now discovered the dangerous truth that these, these attacks do not last forever. Consequently, you cannot use again what is, after all, our best weapon, the belief of ignorant humans that there is no hope of getting rid of us except by yielding. So the temptation, some people will be so persuaded that the, the temptation doesn't end until they give into it. So they give into it thinking that it goes away. And what ultimately happens is the giving into to a temptation, which is the giving into a vice, creates the same effect with vice as it does conversely with virtue. That the more something is practiced, the more habitual it becomes. So that the more a person gives into vice, the more vicious they become. The more that a hold that vice has over that part of their personality. Contrary, contrary-wise, the, the more that a person doesn't really, you don't really give in to virtue, but you, you choose virtue, you give your will to it. And the more that a person acts uh, truthfully and, and speaks truthfully, the more that truthfulness becomes habituated in their soul, right? And the more they become a simply truthful person. So it happens both ways. So if Satan can persuade us that the best way to get rid of a temptation is just to give into it, so then it'll go away, then it's a trick, it's a trap, because he's, he's getting us to, con to, to continue to recommit a, an action which becomes a vice. It becomes something then that in some ways even becomes um, outside of our control. And you could apply that to anything. You know, I mean, um, think of gossip. You know, think of how many times you gossip today or this week, whatever it is. And there's a moment at which that person asks you the question or says something. There's that moment at which you, you know you could have changed the subject or said something like, you know, I just don't want to talk about that or, you know, whatever. You, you, there's that moment you could have gotten out of it, but boy, it was easy to fall in. And so you just, you know, nosedive right into the deep end. Really? what else did he say? <laughs> and off, off and running you go. And so the more you do that, the easier it becomes, right? The hardest thing to do in those moments, of course, at the outset, is to, to put up that boundary and say, you know what? None of my business. I don't want to talk about it. Let's talk about something else. And when we're able to do that, um, it does a couple of things. Number one, that kind of victory I think um, relative to, to failing is a much stronger act, okay? Because it takes a commitment of the will that's, that's much more determined than sort of falling into the, to the vice. So because of that then, the strength of that act I think makes, makes a stronger push toward virtue 
in that area. The other thing it does is it creates a good boundary with that person, you know, and that person realize because gossip isn't fun unless you can find a partner. You know, I can gossip to my Shih Tzu all night long. She doesn't care, you know, she just wants a treat. Um, she'll listen, but she doesn't know. So you need a willing partner, you know. So is when you when you begin to look at, well, who are the people I gossip with? Hmm, maybe, I, maybe we need to talk about that element of our relationship. And then you get it straightened out. And then when you lose willing partners or it's just not kind of what you do, all of a sudden that becomes, but it takes a greater act of the will. Does that make sense? So that the, because uh, to, to make an act of virtue, you have these two tensions in, in a sense. So to make the act of virtue is, is kind of a, a delegate thing, but it really takes a, a commit, committed act of the will, um, which I think plants a flag, so to speak. It's a, it's a determined stand for something. Whereas the vice often is just a giving up. You know, it's just like, Bleh. okay, fine. And you give up and, and you give into it. Um, so in one sense, it's easier to do that. And that's, of course, what Satan wants us to do. Make it easier so that he keeps getting you to fall in. Um, oh, okay, so that's right. This, this, this uh, chapter 20 is, is about sort of... Um, Oh, this was interesting, yeah. Sexual taste. Uh, <laughs> it's just interesting to read something from, you know, the, what was this again, 42? Something like that, 42. Um, so, the business of these great masters to produce in every age a general misdirection of what might be called sexual taste. They do this by working through the small circle of popular artists, dressmakers, actresses, and advertisers who determine the fashionable type. This is, of course, a way in which Satan, you know, uh, enacts the war on, on sexuality and marriage and relationship between the sexes, etc. The aim is to guide each sex away from those members of the other with whom, with whom spiritually helpful, happy, and fertile marriages are most likely. Thus, we have now for many centuries triumphed over nature to the extent of making certain secondary characteristics of the male, such as the beard. Obviously, the beard has been in for a while. When is that going to end? I just, you know, the twirly mustache thing. It's just ridiculous. Bunch of skinny guys in skinny jeans with, with twisty mustaches. Golly. Hipster culture just needs to die. Anyway. If you don't know what that is, ask Joaquin, he knows. Um, all right, so the, <laughs> the idea of, of sort of commandeering what's fashionable and what's attractive, okay? Um, in many ways, Satan is like a, uh, an advertising agency. Um, as regards the male taste, we have varied a good deal. At one time, we have directed it to the statuesque and aristocratic type of beauty mixing men's vanity with their desires and encouraging the race to breed chiefly with the most arrogant and prodigal women. At another, we have selected an exaggerated, exaggeratedly feminine type, faint and languishing, so that folly and cowardice and all the general falseness and littleness of mind which go with them shall be at a premium. At present, we are on the opposite tack. The age of jazz has succeeded the age of the waltz, 
And we now teach men to like women whose bodies are scarcely distinguishable from those of boys. Since this is a kind of beauty even more transitory than most, we thus aggravate the female's chronic horror of growing old with many excellent results and render her less willing and less able to bear children. And that is not all. We have engineered a great increase in the license which society allows to the representation of the apparent nude, not the real nude, in art. And its exhibition on the stage or the bathing beach, it's all a fake, of course. The figures in the popular art are falsely drawn. The real women in bathing suits or tights are actually pinched in and propped up to make them appear firmer and more slender and more boyish than nature allows a full-grown woman to be. I mean, this is before airbrushing and, you know, we know all that stuff's fake. Instagram, Kim Kardashian, yeah, and then filters and everything else, and it's fake. Um, yet at the same time, the modern world is taught to believe that it is being frank and healthy and getting back to nature. As a result, we are more and more directing the desires of men to something which does not exist making the role of the eye in sexuality more and more important, and at the same time, making its demands more and more impossible. This is, this is in the 40s, holy cow. You know, the same thing is true today. You know, you put, uh, you know, a, a, a swimsuit issue of, you know, Sports Illustrated, those are fake. It's fake airbrush, you know. Or you just, you just prop up the women who have starved themselves to death, you know, as, as the epitome of, of womanhood. And you get guys to, to think that that's how women should be. And then after their, their wife has the first child, you know, you have conflict. And you have, and you have a woman who is, is also conflicted about that already, right? And, and feeling, and, you know wanting to be desired, but then how do I hold myself to that standard? I mean, how much liposuction can you have, you know? So, okay, so you get the point though. Um, the, that is the general uh, strategy of the moment, but inside the framework, you will still find it possible to encourage your patient's desires in one of two directions. You will find, if you look carefully into any human's heart, that he is haunted by at least two imaginary women, a terrestrial and an infernal Venus, an earthly or a hellish perfect woman, if you will, and that his desire, we're talking about men now, by the way, um, and that his desire differs qualitatively according to its object. There is one type for which his desire is such as to be naturally amenable to the enemy, readily mixed with charity, readily obedient to marriage, colored all through with that golden light of reverence and naturalness which we detest. There is another type which he desires brutally and desires to desire brutally, a type best used to draw him away from marriage altogether, but which even within marriage he would tend to treat as a slave, an idol, or an accomplice. Do, do you kind of understand what he's getting at here? Um, so within the mind of men, there is sort of the, the, the I don't know, I, I mean, he's described it other ways, but sort of more of the, a real woman, the wholesome woman, the good woman, the virtuous woman that he has a desire for. And then there's the naughty woman <laughs> that he has a desire for as well. And that in a man, there is this sort of, this split. And 
of course, Satan finds a way to corrupt any of those options. Uh, the real use of the, the infernal Venus is no doubt as prostitute or mistress. But if your man is a Christian and if he has been well-trained in nonsense about irresistible and all-excusing love, he can be often induced to marry her. And that is very well worth bringing about. You will have failed as regards fornication and solitary vice, but there are other more indirect methods of using a man's sexuality to his undoing. And by the way, they are not only efficient, but delightful. The unhappiness produced is a very lasting and exquisite kind. So that's something for the men to consider, that little chapter there especially. 21, peevishness. A period of sexual temptation is an excellent time for working in a subordinate attack on the patient's peevishness. Does it ever, has it occurred to you yet, you know, we're on chapter 21, how many different ways is Satan trying to get at us? Like for every one thing you think you're doing well in, there's another thing that he's thinking about. That's kind of the point. So even as Bob is doing well with, with being in love and his sexuality and he's resisting the temptation or it goes away, now there's another attack. You know, the, uh, it's not, it has not been an infrequent occurrence that more senior members of the church have come to me and said, when is this going to stop? Father, I'm 81 years old. When does, <laughs> and all of a sudden now I'm dealing with this. You know, I, I haven't dealt with this in 60 years and now it's back. Or I never dealt with this before and now I am dealing with this. Whatever it is. I mean, there's a, there's a variety of things. And um, th so the thing I've learned, because I'm obviously a ways away from that, is it doesn't end. It just doesn't. There's the good news for today. <laughs> it just doesn't end. You know, you think when you get, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, I can say at my age, there are certain things that um, I've grown in mastery over that used to be more difficult and then, but then there's new stuff. And it seems like every, you know, um, at every step of the way, Satan, he's constantly looking for cracks and, you know, and also has a keen understanding of, of sort of, human development and the, the seasons of life and the things that, you know, older people become really big complainers a lot. None of you in the room, all of the people, all of the non-Catholics in town who are seniors. But at the same time, you know, seniors often are, are also having to put up with, you know, there, there's, if they're retired, there's fears about fixed income. There's, there's anxieties about, about death. They, they don't, you know, physiologically, there are more aches and pains and um, they worry about their family um, and their kids. And so there's a lot of things that, of course, contribute this, this whole new sort of alchemy of issues that didn't exist 20 years prior. And now they have this whole new, you know, composite of things which tend to contribute to certain, you know, um, caricatures of, of, of life, just like you would, you would, you would sort of lump everyone in, and nobody's the same, of course, but, but there are certain things that at different seasons of life tend to be prominent. Um, 
And so Satan just doesn't give up. Okay. Um, so working on a subordinate attack on the patient's peevishness. It may not even be the main attack as long as he thinks it the subordinate one. But here, as in everything else, the way must be prepared for your moral assault by darkening his intellect. Men are not angered by mere misfortune, but by misfortune conceived as injury. Misfortune conceived as injury. It's kind of a victim mentality thing he's going after. And the sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim has been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can be induced to make, the more often he will feel injured and, as a result, ill-tempered. Now, you will, you will have noticed that nothing throws him into a passion so easily as to find a tract of time which he has reckoned on having at his own disposal unexpectedly taken from him inconvenience. It's the unexpected visitor when he was looking forward to a quiet evening or the friend's talkative wife turning up when he looked forward to a tete-a-tete -tete with the friend that threw him off gear. Now he is not yet so uncharitable or slothful that these small demands on his courtesy are in themselves too much for it. They anger him because he regards his time as his own and feels that it is being stolen. So this is sort of the... The, the, the crux of what he's getting at is, is what we consider to be ours, what we consider to possess for ourselves, such that if it is taken away, we consider it as an injury, okay? Um, and, and so he's focused here, just he's starting off on, you know, a person saying, well, my time, it's my time. And if my time is ever disturbed, there's, there's this immediate sense of something being taken away. The man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. It all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and moon as his chattels. He is also, in theory, committed to a total service of the enemy. And if the enemy appeared to him in bodily form and demanded that total service for even one day, he would not refuse. He would be greatly relieved if that one day involved nothing harder than listening to the conversation of a foolish woman. And he would be relieved almost to the pitch of disappointment if for one half hour in that day the enemy said, now you may go and amuse yourself. Now if he thinks about his assumption for a moment, even he is bound to realize that he is actually in this situation every day. Do you follow that? So if God showed up and said, I, I need you to work for me for a day, you'd be like, sure, of course I will. I mean, it's God, you know. I mean, you would be <laughs> kind of honored to think, God is asking you to work for him for a whole day. And if the worst that he said was, you know, listen to this annoying woman for, for a half an hour. Okay, but I could do more for you because it's God, you know. I mean, I might give you a tomorrow too, you know. I mean, the idea that God would directly say, I need you to work for me in this manner. Who would, I mean, you would, we would all like love that, love that sort of direct communication, right? And so Screwtape, Lewis, you know, basically says, if he thinks about this assumption for a moment, even he is bound to realize that he's actually in that situation every day. That is what God is already doing. When I speak of preserving this assumption in his mind, therefore, the last thing I mean for you to do is to furnish him with arguments in its defense. There aren't any. 
your task is purely negative. Don't let his thoughts come anywhere near it. Wrap a darkness about it, and in the center of that darkness, let his sense of ownership in time lie silent, uninspected, and operative. Never let us think we're serving God. Never let us think that God is actually directing us, that God is actually in our everyday, and not just the priests, but no matter what we're doing, that God is directing us and, and that we are actually doing the Lord's work no matter what we're doing, that all of it can be directed to God. Never let a person think that because as soon as they think that, you know, you've given up a huge ground. The sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven as in hell, and we must keep them doing so. Much of the modern resistance to chastity comes from men's belief that they, are their, that they own their bodies. Those vast and perilous estates pulsating with the energy that made the worlds in which they find themselves without their consent and from which they are ejected at the pleasure of another. What is the biggest defense uh, in favor of abortion? It's my body, which technically is not true. Right? A woman who is pregnant has another body distinct from her own within her. It's a lie. It is as if a royal child whom his father has placed for love's sake in titular command of some great province under the real rule of wise counselors should come to fancy he really owns the cities, the forests, and the corn in the same way he owns the bricks on the nursery floor. We produce this sense of ownership not only by pride but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, my country to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. Even in the nursery, a child can be taught to mean by my teddy bear, not the old imagined recipient of affection to whom it stands in a special relation, for that is what the enemy will teach them to mean if we are not careful, but that my bear means the bear I can pull to pieces if I like, right? It's different to say um, my priesthood as something which is given by God and something which is received and to which I'm a steward of than my priesthood, which means I can do whatever I want with it because it's mine, it belongs to me. Does that make sense? So one is a received, one is a gift that we have responsibility. The other one is, is domination again, you know, willfulness. It's mine, so I can do whatever I want. Um, at the end of, other end of the scale, we have taught men to say, my God, in a sense, not really very different from my boots meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services and whom I exploit from the pulpit, the God I have done a corner in. And all the time the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong, certainly not to them, whatever happens. 
At present, the enemy says mine of everything on the pedantic, legalistic ground that he made it. <laughs> Why am I the only one who laughed? That's so. F let me read that again. This is a funny line. All right, let me read that again. At present, the enemy, God, says mine of everything on the pedantic, legalistic ground that he made it. It's funnier? Thanks. Hope you're laughing at home. I got nothing here. Our father hopes in the end to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest. All right, so, right, so the, the Christian perspective is nothing is really ours because we didn't create ourselves. If I created myself, then I could, I could make a claim on it that it was truly mine, but I didn't create myself. I didn't create my soul. I didn't create my gifts. So everything that I have really is gift. And when a, when a person realizes that, then, you know, all of, all of the great things that each one of you can do, you know, are different than the things that I can do. And they're all gift, including our very lives. And if they're all gift, then our response to them should be first gratitude. And then second, a desire to share, because that's the best thing to do with gifts is to share them with others. Right. And so we don't have to fall into the, the goofy, oh, I don't have any gifts. I'm not good at anything. Right. Which is really just sort of a, a way to try to get sympathy. But we can actually claim, yeah, I'm good at stuff. Lewis, you're good at stuff. All kinds of stuff that I'm not good at, which is fantastic. And it's really good for for St. Anne's. Right. Because I can do my stuff and you can do your stuff and Lois can do her stuff, you know, and you can do your stuff. And all of a sudden we've got this great group of people doing stuff and we're all contributing our gifts and it's fantastic. And the same thing happens up here and the same thing happens in Seligman. And it's an amazing thing. And so when the focus becomes unity and community and, and being together and sharing as opposed to mine that I'm gonna keep for myself, then we have that community, you know, which is, which is what the Lord wants us to share in. Okay, so how are we doing here? 22. I'll do one more. Oh, we're back to love. Awesome. Oh, this is a funny one. <laughs> this is a funny one here. Um, chapter 22. So, your man is in love. And in the worst kind he could possibly have fallen into, and with a girl who does not even appear in the report you sent me. You may be interested to learn that the little misunderstanding with the secret police, which you tried to raise about some unguarded expressions in one of my letters has been tidied over. If you are reckoning on that to secure my good offices, you will find yourself mistaken. You shall pay for that as well for your other blunders. So even there you have this competition like, you know, which Lewis intimated at the beginning that that all the devils are trying to outdo each other. They're, all, they're always trying to dominate each other. So here's Screwtape, Uncle Screwtape, writing to Wormwood, and Wormwood's turning him into the Gestapo to get him investigated for heresy, you know. Um, meanwhile, I enclosed a little booklet just issued on the new House of Correction for Incompetent Tempters. <laughs> it is profusely illustrated, and you will not find a dull page in it. I've looked up this girl's dossier and I'm horrified at what I find. Not only a Christian, but such a Christian. A vile, sneaking, simpering, demure, monosyllabic, 
mouse-like, watery, insignificant, virginal, bread-and-butter miss, the little brute. She makes me vomit. She stinks and scalds through the very pages of the dossier. It drives me mad the way the world has worsened. We'd have had her to the arena in the old days. That's what her sort is made for. Not that she'd do much good there either, a two-faced little cheat. I know the sort who looks as if she'd faint at the sight of blood and then dies with a smile. A cheat in every way. Looks as if butter wouldn't melt in her mouth and yet has a satirical wit. The sort of creature who'd find me funny. Filthed, insipid little prude and yet ready to fall into this booby's arms like any other breeding animal. Why doesn't the enemy blast her for it if he's so moonstruck by virginity instead of looking on there grinning? So she's obviously awesome. You know, <laughs> he's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there's pleasure and more pleasure. And he makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't think he has the least inkling of that high and austere mystery to which we rise in the miserific vision. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it is any use to us. So this is, this is a great thing, uh, theme that Lewis has throughout all of his writings, is that God gives us all of these good, good pleasures in life. They're good. They're gifts. They're meant to be enjoyed. They're meant to be pleasurable in their right proportion and in, within their proper context. Um, in that, what again, what Satan does, because Satan doesn't create pleasures, Satan merely corrupts. So Satan takes what is good, you know, takes, takes what is good and tries to, to move us in one of these directions to corrupt us, to corrupt it, so that, so that the pleasure that that we should be able to enjoy um, and have mastery over actually becomes to, comes to have mastery over us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Then, of course, he gets to know this woman's family and whole circle. Could you not see that the very house she lives in is one that he ought never to have entered? The whole place reeks of that deadly odor, sanctity, right? The very gardener, though he has only been there five years, is beginning to acquire it. Even guests, after a weekend visit, carry some of the smell away from them, with them. The dog and the cat are tainted with it. And a house full of the impenetrable mystery. We are certain, it is a matter of first principles, that each member of the family must in some way be making capital out of the others, but we can't find out how, right? They just can't, figure, they just can't figure it out. So what you have is a beautiful family. You know, you have a beautiful family with holiness and with love, and they, you know, Screwtape is just, you know, he's, he's befuddled. What, something's going on because that's not real. You know, there's a trick. Somebody's doing something. They guard as jealously as the enemy himself the secret of what really lies behind this pretense of disinterested love. The whole house and garden is one vast obscenity. 
It bears a sickening resemblance to the description one human writer made of heaven, the regions where there is only life and therefore all that is not music is silence. So one of the things he's really bringing out here is the hatred that Satan and his minions have of, of goodness. You know, not, not only their inability to understand it and receive it, but the hatred they have of it. And of course they would have to, because if they had rejected that for all of eternity, you could only really reject that for all of eternity if you had a, had a, a real hatred, right? And disgust for it. Music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, though longer ago than humans reckoning in light years could express, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of these abominable forces, but all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. Noise which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. But I admit we are not yet loud enough, nor anything like it. Research is in progress. Meanwhile, you, disgusting little... Here the message breaks off and is resumed in a different hand. So before I get to that, so the, the, uh, this idea of noise as opposed to music, to which some people will say, I can't stand that noise on the radio today. It doesn't sound like music. I've said that. I just said that today at the health club. I can't stand that music. It's just made by a computer. It's just noise. Okay. Well, that's not really what he's talking. He's talking about cacophony. You know, noise that has no, uh, no beauty, no aim, no sort of telos, you know, no goal, just noise, noise for noise sake to distract, right? Because music can uplift and silence can uplift. Um, and if we were to extrapolate this to sort of uh, not just audible noise, but to um, all of the noise that is in our life from our cell phones and our TVs and our internet and our, not that any of those things are bad in themselves because I, I have them all as well, but that we can become so consumed by distraction and noise that we're, we don't really take time out to be lifted up, you know? And so music and silence are two things that really can elevate us can really connect us with what is transcendent. There are times, one of my favorite times, people have said, Father, why, do you, why did you schedule the masses and everything the way you did? It's actually a really pleasant drive to Seligman on Sunday morning. It's really pleasant. Um, it's, you know, it's 30 minutes or 35 minutes, depending on how fast I go. Um, but oftentimes, I just, I don't have anything you know, on the radio or no distract, just silence, you know, and then even coming back, silence. And it's, uh, it's really pleasant, you know, looking at the beautiful mountains. Last Sunday was so beautiful, the, the, uh, the clouds coming over the mountains and shrouding the mountains and seeing off in the distance the sun peeking through and uh, just beautiful, 
just gorgeous, you know. Um, that's uplifting. I felt really lifted up, you know. Um, and not that music couldn't have done it either, but just to consume ourselves with noise, I think sometimes, myself included, we miss out on those moments of transcendent connection, you know. Okay. So the message breaks off and continues in a different hand. In the heat of composition, I find that I've inadvertently allowed myself to assume the form of a large centipede. I'm accordingly dictating the rest to my secretary. Now that the transformation is complete, I recognize it as a periodical phenomenon. Some rumor of it has reached the humans and, and a distorted account of it appears in the poet Milton. So anyway, he got himself up you know, into such a lather that he mutated into a centipede. <laughs> anyway, transformation proceeds from within and is a glorious manifestation of that life force which our father would worship if he worshiped anything but himself. In my present form, I feel, more even, I feel even more anxious to see you, to unite you to myself in an indissoluble embrace. Signed, Toadpipe, who is a secretary. Um, Oh, signed Toadpipe, toad pipe, and then for his abysmal sublimity under secretary screw type, screw tape. Okay, that's it. Thank you, everyone. So next week is our, our last class for screw tape letters. So finish it up this week. <laughs>